A reading from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20 in the English Standard Version. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for... Eh, that's the wrong passage. Can I find it in the Bible? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and your, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again of the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. All right. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. All right. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but... Love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are all things and through him we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not condemn us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, we, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. 
the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes your, my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Mark, the gospel according to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. All right. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so we're in the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, which is the fifth Sunday in Epiphany. I always feel like that's a great way of numbering it because it makes you think, and it makes it more confusing. And if it's more confusing, it must be good, if you understand it. Uh, so, um, if you look at the bookends of, of uh, Epiphany, the, uh, after the advent of Christ, the revealing of him, um, of, of in Jesus' birth as the Christ and in the other bookend of the transfiguration of him, both are revealing him being the Christ, being God with us. Uh, and then we move on to, to Lent. Um, we're in this period of revelation of, or, or testifying about Christ um, of, in some capacity. And so uh, we've got our normal slate of uh, Old Testament. We're not going to do the Psalm reading, First uh, Corinthians, or second reading, First Corinthians, and and the Gospel of Mark. And so, uh, as we start, I want to start with Mark because uh, I actually have the least amount to say about our Gospel reading today. It also has the least notes, so it makes it a little bit quicker. So I want to point out as we're. Um, talking in Deuteronomy, as we will talk in Deuteronomy about prophets, about a prophet's coming um, who will speak all that the Lord uh, commands him to speak. We're going to see that that's a foreshadowing and that in itself was a prophecy about the coming Christ, about the true prophet that's going to come. But in Mark, 
um, we start seeing this picture of Christ that not only is he, as Jesus is teaching in the synagogues, I think I just find it amazing that the the buildup in, at least in these passages in Mark, it's, they're realizing that this is someone who teaches with authority. He knows what he's talking about. And then on top of that, there's a, a new teaching on top of that, is that the demons are obeying him. <laughs> if you read a little bit uh, of John Gill's commentary on, he's always throwing in there, um, I love the, I love John Gill's commentary because um, it's, extremely thorough. It's free online. <laughs> and uh, it only has the seminal ideas of dispensationalism. And so he's not uh, in any particular way dispensational. And he comes from a Jewish background. So he, he's always throwing in there um, non-canonical books from Jewish writers of like the Targum and different things of saying, uh, which gives you a little bit more perspective on on people who from a Jewish descent that were closer uh, in time frame or context to Christ. And so he's always throwing in there, um, well, this is what the, how the Jewish people would interpret it. And he says, well, it couldn't be this. And it'll be like one passage, um, you know, one half of a verse. And then he'll have like three paragraphs saying, some people would think it was this. And some people would think it was this. And some people would think it was this, but it couldn't be any of those because of this. And he goes to explain what the, uh, a more holistic biblical understanding would be. And so uh, oftentimes in John Gill's commentary, he's speaking and referencing various Jewish contemporaries of Jesus since the second deportation in the, uh, I think most of the writings would have been like within 300 years, but within a couple hundred years of Christ that, deliverances and like there were more Jewish people casting out demons. And so uh, you see that in the book of Acts, uh, that there were Jewish people who apparently were, you know, at least uh, the, the sons of Sceva were at least trying. And that had become a more um, notable thing in that time period. And so uh, I just want to point out that uh, even the demons are testifying about the Christ there's nothing in one thing. Um, well, there's nothing in creation that doesn't testify about the awesomeness, the goodness, the sovereignty, and the truth of our Lord. And uh, that's something interesting. Uh, Noel and I talking about like worldviews is we live in this reality, and um, not just that the subject that the demons are subject to do whatever God's will is but they can't even help but testify. They didn't even try to slander Christ. They said, we know who you are. Uh, uh, what are you going to do, destroy us? And in other parts of the gospel, they say, we know it's not your time yet. Uh, and Jesus, I think, I think they were right. The, demon, the demons didn't say anything false, but they were trying to jump the gun. If they were going to get destroyed, they were trying to ruin other people's testimony. So anyways, um, uh, I like that culmination in Mark where it says that they're, they were amazed at like Jesus is now teaching one who actually had authority. He knew what he was talking about. And on top of that, the demons were, he had authority over the demons. And so let's go to Deuteronomy.
Deuteronomy 18. Um, so in here we have, this is a, a pretty famous passage about, and we've talked about it before, um, anytime we get near this, is that a prophet like me, uh, prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, is him you shall listen. And the Lord later says in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Uh, and so, uh, one of the things that's beneficial in when you read this, if you just, uh, it's good sometimes to think holistically. And so we know that Jesus says that all the Old Testament was about him in John five thirty nine. Um, and so we know this is talking about Jesus because everything's about Jesus. Uh, and if you're like me, you even put a little note in your Bible that says Jesus is the prophet. And you use a lowercase p, but you should have used an uppercase p. But you realize your mistakes as your theology grows. But anyways, uh, uh, and we, so we understand that. But if you were to go back and think about, um, there's no prophets really arising. There's like Melchizedek, who's a priest, who's mentioned, and no really anywhere else does it say that Moses is a prophet, except for kind of here. And, and you don't really see the line of prophets, and even most of the writings in Scripture point to Samuel being the first of the prophets. Like Samuel's like the first one, but Moses says that he is a prophet. And so what the heck is going on? Uh, and so he says, one like me, a prophet like me, from among you, from your brothers, uh, you shall listen, and, and the prophet like you, Lord, the Lord says to Moses, like you, uh, will arise. And so what kind of prophet was Moses? What was the, not just the office of a prophet, like he wasn't, Moses really wasn't predicting the future a whole lot, except for maybe back in Egypt when he was going to say what was going to happen. Um, but Moses, he says it very directly in here that the Lord says, I will put my words in his mouth. So this type of prophet, what we're seeing, what Moses was doing very directly in context um, was that he's the mouthpiece of God to the people. He's the mediator. And then also you look at other prophetic roles um, or prophetic offices of, um, you know, Samuel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jonah, um, Jonah's not as clear, but uh, that there's a teaching role, right? So Moses wasn't just a prophet that was the, the mediator between God and the rest, right? Everyone, when we're reading here in Deuteronomy, it's talking about Mount Sinai, right? That we talked about a couple weeks ago of that covenant that was made, that there's a flaming uh, fire, there's these earthquakes, there's all these terrible things going on, and they're like, uh, Moses, why don't you go up? That sounds like a good idea. I'll stay down here because that's that seems safer, and I'll do that. And they needed a a mediator between God and them, God and Israel, lest they die. And even uh, when they say we can't take these words anymore, lest we die, the Lord says, "You're right. <laughs> no more." Um, and so that's the kind of prophet we're looking for. You got to think in context of what kind of prophet Moses was. Because he, he really doesn't look like a prophet when we look at like Samuel or Jonah or even how the prophets wrote or did things. But he did do the prophetic office of teaching, of discipling. And so when we look at, um, I'm going to jump to Second Peter 2.1. 
Let's go there. Because we don't really see a whole lot of prophets in the New Testament, right? We don't. There's one that comes down in, in Acts, uh, and there's Agabus who prophet was a prophetess. John the Baptist was a prophet, um, but it's not as we don't see that office, I guess, as clearly in the New Testament like we see in the Old Covenant, where we see that there's Samuel that says he's a prophet. He's the prophet for all of Israel, and so let's go to. What is it? First Peter. I'm sorry. Second Peter two one. But false prophets also arose among the people. Right, talking about in the old covenant, there's false prophets that arose to to lead people away. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so, directly in Deuteronomy. Um, the, I don't have the sheet up here, but the last verse in, in, well, that verse 20, last verse we read, is speaking of, if the prophet says something that's not from me, he shall be put to death, right? Um, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. He deserves death. Right? And so there's this equation in the New Testament with false prophets of the Old Testament and false teachers coming in to teach destructive heresies. Not saying, not equating to such a degree that there's no prophets and now just teachers are prophets because that wouldn't make any sense with Ephesians that says, Ephesians 4, 11, apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers, evangelists. Um, did I miss one? Apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers, evangelists. Uh, that those people were given to the church as gifts from God. You know, it says when Christ ascended. So there very much was still apostles and prophets and teachers, evangelists, shepherds. And so um, one of the uh, main roles of a prophet was teaching. What did Moses do when he received the law? What else did he brought it to the people, and he taught it to them. What did Nehemiah do? The same thing. thing. He taught the people, right? Um, What was uh, the prophet's role uh, in much of the Old Covenant wasn't just to go to new lands to prophesy destruction, like you can see in Jonah, um, but to go and teach, to to spread, to go, not just teach, uh, not just say some prophetic thing that's ethereal and mystical and God's going to do something crazy and then see you later. The prophets were going out and teaching. The prophets were instructing Israel within their own nation, right? And so, um, you know, this verse comes in, when you think in context of Christ, we, we see... Uh, you know, Hebrews 1 says that in many times and in many ways God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days he speaks through his son, Christ, Jesus Christ. Uh, Acts 3.22 and Acts 7.37 directly interpret this verse as speaking about Jesus. So there's a good biblical hermeneutic. We don't just need to trust Jesus, that all the Old Testament was about him, and we're going to figure out how that's true. Uh, the, uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, says in two different places, quoting this verse, 
that that prophet is Jesus, is who we should have been looking for. And so in the first century, um, you know, when you go back to Deuteronomy and he says, uh, would have been 18 or 19, um, verse 19, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will, will require it of him. And so uh, in this Deuteronomy passage, he's, the Lord is very much warning those first century Jews and first century Israel that there's going to be false Christ. Barabbas was a false Christ. He was an insurrectionist. Uh, and there's other, there were many other well-documented false Christ that came in the first century. Uh, part of that is because I've been trying to hammer that Daniel, the book of Daniel lays out very clearly a timeline of when the Christ is going to come. So uh, if you believe the prophets and you uh, knew the timeline and you knew how to count and you knew what year it was, then you could very easily uh, give a very short window of when the Christ was going to come and you would have had to know what to look for and, and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, yeah, just like that. <laughs> and so the Lord says here in Deuteronomy that his words, or the Lord saying my words, the Lord's words will be in his mouth. And so when you see, and when you look at Mark, you start seeing Jesus didn't fit the picture of the, the physical image of what Israel was looking for, what the Pharisees, what the Sadducees and everybody um, was looking for. He didn't fit the, he didn't wear nice clothes. He didn't have a home, those type of things. But he spoke with authority. He cast out demons. And so uh, it wasn't, uh, and you can look at all the other prophets. They didn't really wear nice clothes either. And so why they were looking for someone with nice clothes and had good social standing, I don't know why uh, they were that deceived. But they were supposed to be looking for his teaching, for the words of the Lord, to the one that spoke with authority. Um, and so uh, I also just want to mention um, that when you look at the fivefold ministry in Ephesians, apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers, and evangelists, all of those are teaching ministries. All of them are. Um, you look at the apostles, they taught. The prophets, they taught. Uh, evangelists are teaching how to evangelize. Shepherds and teachers. Teachers, they're teaching. Got that one down. Um, and so... Uh, when John 1 says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth uh, came through, through Christ, he's not pitting them against, but just like we looked at last week or a couple weeks ago about the different covenants of Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion is that uh, he's not saying that the law is opposed to grace and truth. Um, the law was truth. The law was grace. And, and but... Uh, Christ was bringing about this new covenant and this new teaching, or at least it seemed new to the people, um, that actually was a distinction between Sinai and Zion. And Christ was bringing that, uh, and, uh, that teaching of Zion, right? It wasn't a teaching of condemnation of the people weren't listening to Jesus and saying, 
and realizing he was the Christ and saying, good, you go over here and talk to God. It was that covenant that draws us into the mountain, that draws us up to the presence of God. And so uh, that's the type of prophet that we were called to look for. Um, and even if you're just reading in context, just to throw some other things uh, in there about that, uh, there were other prophets, Samuel, uh, starting with Samuel and, and going through all of the Old Covenant, but none of them met uh, those standards. None of them were a prophet like Moses. None of them stood in between. From, from here on, um, from the uh, tabernacle on, uh, the priests started to do those things, right? The priests were the ones standing in between. And Daniel, you're shaking your head. No, no. I'm like, is this? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like, okay. I'll, I'll reread this one. Uh, but there wasn't, there wasn't another prophet that did that, right? Moses was a very special type of prophets that we're supposed to look for. Um, and so none of the other prophets fulfilled that type of ministry. Um, and so let's look at 1 Corinthians 8. I didn't realize this until, um, because most of the time when I'm reading and preparing for this, I'm reading actually from the, uh, from the lectionary, so I'm not using the ESV. And so I didn't realize it until it was on the board, but I like the ESV um, uh, translators that put knowledge in brackets and says you have this type of knowledge they put it in quotations kind of indicating that it's not real knowledge and so let's read just a little bit to recap in 1 Corinthians 8 um, verse 1 now concerning food offered to idols we know that all possess all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know. All right? I love that. I love that Paul says that if you think you know something, you just don't really know. <laughs> You're actually like deceived. If you think you have knowledge, this is the type of knowledge that puffs up. I think that, uh, I mean, I experience that probably weekly. I'm like, oh my God, like I know something and everybody else doesn't. Like, what am I going to do? <laughs> I, like, I know, like, like the, this is almost like I could write new scripture. <laughs> like, that's pretty deceived. Uh, that's the knowledge that, like, puffs up. Because what he, say, he says, real knowledge actually is humbling. Because, uh, what's the, how's the saying go? When you think you know something, the first thing you know is that you don't really know that much or anything. The passage in Ecclesiastes we talked about. Oh, much vexation. Yeah, vexation or sorrow. Yeah, with more knowledge, you just realize that uh, uh, you don't know that much. And, and what are you going to do with knowledge? Like, knowledge is great. Theology, I love it. I love to study things. I love to have knowledge. But the one of the things we look at in here in this passage of not offending your brother is some knowledge is useless and um, you should increase your knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of scriptures like these, these are good things, but it's useless to the point of what do you do with it? 
how do you wield it? If the word is a sword and you're reading and you're getting knowledge from the word, how are you handling it? Are you chopping down? Are you mauling people over? Uh, right? We, we see that all the time. Um, you know, I, uh, well, this is, that's too long of a side story for eight minutes uh, to get us off track. And so uh, what this chapter is, just think about the context. Everybody knows 1 Corinthians 13 about the, the way of love. Of This is the first part of what puts that chapter in context of you think you know something, but how you're acting shows that you don't really know anything or that you don't know it rightly. And because uh, what it should translate into is humility and brotherly affection or love. And so back to the Peters, uh, back to Second Peter. Uh, this is one of my favorite uh, scriptures to memorize uh, when the Lord first started working on me. Um, 1 Peter 1, uh, starting in 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Right? That's supposed to translate into something, doing something. The more you know, you more, the more you're supposed to do. Self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And here's the, here's like the big thing for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Uh, then last one, verse, last part, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And so even in, in Peter has this idea of knowledge, this building up, like you, it's not a progression of I need to work on this and this and this and this and this. It's with, uh, Faith, you're supposed to work your faith out in, in virtue or in these qualities. And the more you read and study, the more you realize, oh, I have to do something. And that's going to cause me to have to have some self-control. And then once you gain a little bit of self-control, you're like, oh, I have to continue doing this. I thought this was a one-time thing. <laughs> Not, uh, I have to like do this my whole life. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to rethink Christianity. Um, but with that, like the culmination is brotherly affection and love of how we're you know, doing that in community with one another. And these are the things that keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord. These are the things that you're, you're focusing on, you're thinking about to make sure that, like, that our knowledge and our faith and all these things are effective, that we're not just, like, wasting our time, right? Is anybody ever worried about, like, uh, not being fruitful in the Lord? <laughs> like, I think about that, like, every day. I'm like... I'm not doing anything. My life is like, what am I doing? Uh, but that's what it's, it's culminating in, especially in 1 Corinthians 8, he's talking about this, this uh, you know, stop thinking about yourself and how much you know, start thinking about other people idea. And so um, 
Colossians handles the same idea uh, with, you know, we're not going to read it with asceticism, which is the removal of things or removal of like superfluous things. Like, um, I remember reading about, uh, who's the holiest nun lady? Mother Teresa. Thank you. Mother Teresa. Uh, and, you know, she was a Roman Catholic, but she did like so many good things, especially works in, in Africa and over various parts of the world. But she was apparently a holy ascetist. Holy meaning W-H-O-L-L-Y. Um, where if there was like, you go into a house and they have a rug and they don't need a rug, let's remove it. That's too much. That's extra. You don't need that. Let's remove that. And things like that, where we uh, oftentimes, this, this 1 Corinthians 8 is, is saying that, well, we can do, uh, we know the real things, we know the real spiritual things going on behind this, so we can do whatever we want. And, uh, and the weak person, uh, it's not that they're not knowledgeable, it's that they're con- they'd be sinning against their conscience, Right? And sure, knowledge, they could be taught and they can, it doesn't even say that, go and teach them. It doesn't even say that. It's, Paul's more worried about not offending them, um, right? Does anybody like, uh, you don't have to say names. Uh, this is just a, a showing of hands participation. Uh, has anybody ever uh, realized that someone else in the church uh, doesn't know something and, <laughs> and you want to tell them? <laughs> Uh, right? It's easy to say, like, and go and say, well, I can show them this, and I can show them this passage, and I can show them this, and then they can enjoy the same things as me, and they can watch the same movies, and they can drink the same things, and eat the same things, and live the same way, and they'll love it. (laughs) That's not how it works. Uh, I wish it did. We'd all, never mind, Uh, we'd all be like-minded in some ways. But it's about not offending your brother, and uh, he doesn't say go and teach them the right way. There are passages where um, people, like in Acts 19, where uh, Apollos was pulled aside to teach the way of Christ more clearly, but that's because he was teaching something less than biblical. But these are, these are matters of conscience. The, the real issue here is not offending your brother, to, to keep unified, to stay one body, to work together, to allow diversity while being unified and not um, uh, you going out of your way to make sure that that brother or sister isn't offended. And so he clearly says that sinning against your brother in this manner is sinning against Christ. Uh, I think it's easy for us. I think the reason why Paul wrote that is because it's easy for us to say and point to, well, that's the weaker brother. Like, you know, he's the weaker one that's doing it, and I'm the one, or that's not doing it, and I'm doing it. I've got the Christian liberty, so I do it. So I'm the more mature brother, and so uh, I should let them know that, or I should live in such a way, or... um, And we carry around this, like, attitude that... uh, uh, or at least maybe, I don't know if anybody else struggles with this, but this, ad, this attitude that we're somehow more mature because we have and partake in more Christian liberties. You're more mature when you can partake in those liberties and do it in such a way that doesn't offend your brother. You're actually not as mature as the other person 
if you're partaking in liberties and offending people. That actually just points out that we're less mature. And that's a struggle, right? Um, but that's what Paul gets to in 1 Corinthians 13 of like, you know, love doesn't insist on its own way and, and things like that. And so, um, you know, just keeping that in mind of, I think that's huge in, in living in um, and trying to live in community of like fasting for and praying for, of how are we going to live in such a way that we're constantly thinking about the other person? Not how am I going to, you know, there's certain ways um, to help people come into more maturity, but those aren't teachings about what things that are against your conscience. Those are things like what we, what brings people into maturity is an elevation of Christ, an elevation of the Father and the Holy Spirit and of Christ's kingdom. And, you know, these more orthodoxical teachings because these things like food sacrifice to idols, has anybody ever thought about like, um, like why in Acts? Like, doesn't it seem kind of contradictory when you're reading this in First Corinthians and then in Acts, they write the letter in, in Acts 15 and it says to abstain from food sacrifice to idols. Well, well, come on, which one is it? Should you abstain from food sacrifice to idols or should you not? Or, or should you seek to be more mature? Or was the Jerusalem council saying, uh, don't eat these food, like you guys aren't mature, so just stay that way and keep doing the immature thing, right? Seems a little weird, right? Or it seems somewhat contradictory. But what the Jerusalem council was doing was helping them gain a new lifestyle, Right? They were sending out uh, to separate themselves from things that they once did. Uh, and they only had a small letter. Uh, and then in God's sovereignty, uh, much of the epistles and stuff were written to instruct people on those things later. And so it's not that the Jerusalem council was saying something different than what Paul's saying. But what it seemed like they were doing was trying to get those uh, people out of the world that they were living in, right? If you're used to going to the temple every day and eating food sacrificed to idols, uh, then you should probably abstain from that and get a new life <laughs> in Christ. Uh, and the context of 1 Corinthians is, is a little bit different where they're not partaking in that. There's Just read about how uh, the... You're living in a city with food sacrificed to idols. There's a lot of extra. They're constantly throwing parties. Do you go to the party? That's more of the First Corinthians context, anyways. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit different context and, um, and different meanings there. And so uh, with that, let's worship. Uh, I'll close in prayer. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be present here. That you would open our eyes to. Uh, to love you and to love our brothers and sisters whom you've placed in our community. Help us to do that in real ways that we would be uh, effective um, in the knowledge of you through Jesus Christ. Amen.